Hello, everybody. It's Pastor Adam, and I'm uh, looking forward to sharing with you today what God has put on my heart, and I believe it'll be very encouraging. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I will begin. Father, I thank you for today and for this opportunity you've presented us with. We, we are grateful for your grace, your mercy, your justice, your forgiveness, and your covenant that you made with us through your Son, through the blood. We thank you, Father, in the mighty and matchless name of him, in Jesus Christ, amen. So you may have heard in the prayer, I'm, I'm reiterating to, you know, this message today is focusing on the position and authority Christians have, what we've, we've signed up for through the blood covenant with God. You know, in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24, Bible says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. <clears throat> now, I don't want to assume, you know, we all understand what's going on here. So I want us to make sure that we look through the lens of the Hebrew language, through the eyes of the Hebrew language to understand what these words mean. So when you study Hebrew, you under, you'll understand that there are two different meanings in the Hebrew for this word friend. First time in this scripture, it's the Hebrew word reah, and it means a brother or a companion or a neighbor. Now, the second time it's used is the Hebrew word ahab, which means a deep love or affection or beloved, a covenant this, this second meaning of friend used that we found here in Proverbs 18, 24 is, in other words, would be someone you trust 100%. They, if they give you their word, you can take it to the bank. This meaning of friend is like that. They'll never stab you in the back. They'll never deceive you. They'll never betray you. I hope you can hear the difference or you can see the difference in those two versions of what friend is. So when this scripture talks about the friend that sticks closer than a brother, who, who do you think that is? Well, it's none other than Yeshua Yamashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Now, <clears throat> when you read and study the Bible, in the scriptures, there is a guy, there is a man that is identified as a friend of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, we rarely find friend mentioned using the Hebrew word ahab. Majority of the time, it's the word reah. But two times I've found it mentions Abraham as ahab, as a friend of God. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7. That scripture says God gave it to Abraham, his friend. And in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8, scripture says, and God has chosen Abraham, my friend. This is, this is extremely significant because God is using a term of a covenant partnership to describe his friendship with Abraham. Now, when we... When we read in the New Testament, <clears throat> I would suggest we could like summarize three kinds of levels, if you will, of friendship or descriptions of friendships, just kind of 
summarizing the entire New Testament. I would categorize those in these three ways. One way would be a hireling. A second way would be a servant. And a third way would be friend. So let me, let me describe each of these. A hireling is someone, according to Scripture, that works for somebody and, and because they are getting paid. If, if the individual quits getting paid, they will quit working for that person. They, they will not work for free. That's a hireling, okay? Now, the next uh, description is, you know, a friendship would be servant. Now, a servant does things because they, they desire to do it. They're not, they do it out of their own free will. They serve because, you know, they, they love what they're doing and they've determined there is value in serving now. They just, that's, okay, that's, that's basically how, you know, ministries and churches uh, should operate, okay? Ministries and churches are striving to get people involved in serving, right? I, I remember in our church, Freedom Destiny, we were always, I mean, there wouldn't be a time we met that I wouldn't talk about this. We're always trying to get people to utilize their gifts from God to benefit the whole body. We'd We'd encourage them to take a spiritual gift test. We'd, we'd then encourage them once they found out what their top three spiritual gifts were to get involved in those areas because they have gifts that the rest of us need. And when everybody's partaking, the whole body functions better if everyone stays in their lanes of what their giftings are and serving. And see, we didn't, we didn't force people or intimidate them but we hoped they would have a desire to serve of their own free will. And, (laughs) you know, one of the realities of serving is you don't always get recognized for what you do. You, You do what you do because you love to serve and that is reward enough. It's supposed to be. And that's where our flesh sometimes reveals itself, right? Because we get a little upset if we don't get recognized or or whatever, but that's, that's the deal. That's when we're growing. If you get involved, you'll, you'll deal with this, I promise you. And some of you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so the final uh, you know, level or description of friendship in the New Testament, I think, is best described, well, let's just let Jesus tell us what it is. In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I've made known to you. So here Jesus is telling his disciples, you are no longer servants, but now you are being promoted to the final level of understanding relationship, and I'm going to call you friend. So like, pay attention here, but it says a servant does not know that the secrets of the master. Now, that is very interesting. I mean, it makes me, you know, think a little bit and maybe have a better understanding of how there were 12 disciples, but only three of the 12 were in Jesus's, I would call it, inner circle. It's Peter, James, and John. Jesus did not all did not let all the 12 participate in every you know conversation he had and, and I would describe those as inner circle conversations and you may be 
you know, wanting, well, wait a second, what are you talking about here? Well, here, let me explain. All 12 were not invited to the mountain of transfiguration. Only Peter, John, and James. All 12 were not in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper when Jesus' sweat became his blood. Only Peter, John, and James. And I think there's a reason for this. Jesus is showing us you can't let everybody into your inner circle. Please hear this, folks. This is important. The reason you can't do that is because everything, let's think about your own experiences in life. Everything is fine, right? As long as, you know, the glory's coming down and the transfiguration is taking place and you're seeing Moses and Elijah, everything is hunky-dory. But what about when you're in the blood, sweat, and tears part of your life? See, it's one thing for everybody to see you in the glory stage when everything is going great. It's a totally different thing when you get into the Gethsemane part of your life when things are not going so great. You find out real fast that everybody, and I mean everybody, loves you in the glory stage. They want a piece of that, right? They want to associate with what people can, oh, a winner, or things are going good. I like that for the most part, right? But many of those very same people will forsake you in the Gethsemane part of your life. Now, I know That struck a chord with some of you because you know exactly what I'm talking about. It may bring up some old pain and hurt, but it's, it's true. And we all have these experiences. You may not realize it, but you do. So in this scripture, Jesus tells them, I'm gonna call you friends because I'm now going to make known to you the secrets that have been kept since the foundation of the world. And so that should help you and I get a more complete understanding about this word friend. And just like in the Old Testament, this word friend means the very same thing in the New Testament. It means a covenant partner. And a covenant partner is someone who understands secrets and understands the intimacy of God's heart that most people, unfortunately, just don't tap into. Psalm 25 verse 14 says this, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. In other words, I think God is saying, if you want to know his covenant, you want to know the power of his covenant, then you need to become a friend with him. But guess what? When you become a friend with God, you have a part of the covenant. (laughs) Now, this, you know, this might help explain how, you know, when you, you know, you've been in church services or you've been in, you know, ministry or ministry events, uh, and you'll hear a message, and it seems like about a third of the people, you know, I don't know, but there's a, a, a group of people that kind of look like deer. They're looking at you like a deer staring into the headlights. They just, it's just, they don't get what's going on at all. Then there's a group, I don't know, you know, how big the group is, but there's always a group that just can't wait to get out of there and get home. And then you have a group, you know, I don't know, again, the size, but there's always seems to be some kind of group that's on their, you know, that's on their feet praising God or they're shouting or they're just, you're really worshiping God. They're there to to honor God. And I think it's just because some have spiritual ears to hear and are in tune with the heartbeat of the Father as the preaching is going forth. Now, in order to be a friend of God, you have to have a covenant with God. So what is a covenant? Well, 
what's the Hebrew word for covenant? Well, that's the word barith. And it means to cut, to divide. Well, I think if we go back to the very, near the very beginning in Genesis chapter 15, God told Abram, cut those animals in half and walk between the pieces to establish the covenant. And I'll do the same, which, which what? The lamp and the light that represented God. So Abraham was making a covenant with God there. In the, in the New Testament, right, it's written in Greek. The Greek word for covenant is didache. And it means a, depo, a disposition of property by will or an agreement between two parties. So these two words basically mean the same thing, and it's an agreement between two parties that involve a will or someone being enacted through another. Another word for covenant in the English is testament. Testament means will. That's interesting, right? Because we have the Old and New Testaments. Huh. Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. (laughs) Right? And a testament means a will. Right? A desire for someone to write down what they want someone to have after they die, after they're gone. So all of these words mean that a covenant is a will, a covenant. It's a bond between two people. For example, in scripture, we read of a covenant between God and Noah. God said the earth would never be destroyed by water again, and the sign of that would be a rainbow. God made a covenant between him and Abraham. He said he would give Abraham a new land, a new nation, and a new people. And the sign of this covenant would be circumcision. God made a covenant with David. He said he would give David an everlasting kingdom and Jerusalem will be the capital. Well, Jerusalem's still there and it continued to be there. And all the crazies in the world that want to destroy it can't because it's going to be there. And it's going to be there when Jesus comes back. Now let's quickly review basic covenant 101 understanding. Okay, just kind of review here. A covenant is between two parties and has agreements, conditions, and promises. When you and I, when we surrendered our life to Jesus, you enter in, we entered into an agreement with Jesus, okay? That's an agreement. It's, we agree, right? Another part of the agreement is the terms between, the, between us. For, for us, the agreement of terms is we will follow the Bible. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and do the things I told you to do, which are in the Bible, Next, there are certain conditions that are met between the two parties. Think about those certain scriptures that say, if you abide in me and my word abide in you. Remember when Jesus said it, if you live in me, my word will live in you. If you obey my commandments, if you hearken unto my word, if you obey me. See, when you see in scripture, when you see the if then, that the if then kind of phrase, that means there is something we have to do, which is a condition to bring that promise to pass. Now, the fourth part of this covenant is that there are rewards for filling the agreement. Now, I can tell you, we got the best reward in the covenant with Jesus. I mean, just be honest. Take a good look at what you have to offer God. You got nothing to offer him. But we get to inherit eternal life in a city called the New Jerusalem and drink from the river of living water and eat from the tree of life and sickness, pain, sorrow is gone pass away, and that is the reward that God gives us for our part of the covenant. That's what he gives us. 
Now, finally, in the covenant, if we don't obey, there are consequences. With God, if there's disobedience, there is chastisement and discipline that God gives to his children. And the most powerful covenant known to the world is a covenant that is ratified or sealed in blood. Are you aware that one of the things a covenant does for you is let you use your covenant partner's name to get what you need when you need it? Now, in our culture, in the Western world, this is referred to, we see it through the legal system, it's called the power of attorney, which means to act as an agent to represent another person, another party. Myself, I've acted multiple times as a power of attorney, numerous times as a naval officer and as a pastor. It's a legal document that gives somebody else the power of attorney to sign your name on a document, and it's just as if you signed it. And what that means is I did not have to physically be there for that to take place, right? So when that document was signed, it was like you were actually there, even though you weren't. Now, let's apply it to like, Christianity or a Christian today. You and I have the same power of attorney I just mentioned. Do you realize that in all of the Gospels, Jesus tells us to use this phrase. Here's what part of the covenant we have to use that is a benefit to us. He said, use in my name you shall. In my name. Jesus said, use, right? In my name you shall do things. So in other words, Jesus knew he was not going to be here in his physical body Right, but that didn't matter. He gave us a power of attorney because once Jesus said, in my name, you shall, Jesus gave us delegated authority or what could be referred to as a power of attorney. Therefore, when we say the name of Jesus, it is just like Jesus himself saying it. So continuing on this path, let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Scripture says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if any one sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay, so stating some obvious things here, but don't you know there are times when we don't obey God? Yep. We make mistakes. All right? We sin, but we don't want to practice sinning. But if we do sin, this says we have an advocate with the Father. Well, what's an advocate? An advocate means someone used in a court of justice to denote legal assistance or counsel for the defense. In other words, Jesus is an advocate who pleads another's case. Well, why do we have to have somebody pleading our case in heaven? Well, let's look at this scripture in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So this is saying that the Satan is the accuser in a heavenly court day and night. The Satan is making accusations against us and bringing condemnation to our heart every time we do something we know we shouldn't have done. Well, the Bible tells us says that Jesus is, is living up there to make intercession for us. He's an advocate for us. And that is not only to answer our prayers, it's also to defeat the powers of the Satan who is accusing us. So when we sin and do something we shouldn't do, the enemy seems to show up and says, yeah, we got him now, right? That's what goes on in many, like we got him, he did this. 
And then he goes to present the case to the God. But what the, what the Satan doesn't understand is you already repented and you got on your knees. And by the time the Satan accuses you, the father opens the record book and says, guess what? I can't find anything like that on them because the advocate, my son, Jesus Christ, already covered it with his blood. <laughs> oh, and don't forget this, that Jesus said when he departed, he ascended back up to the heavens He said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will send another comforter that will abide with you forever. That word comforter is the Greek word parakletos. And it means someone called aside to help and has the same meaning as advocate. In other words, the Holy Spirit is an advocate here on earth, just like Jesus is an advocate in heaven. John chapter 16 Verses 13 through 15 says this. This was Jesus speaking. He says, however, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So in other words, Jesus is telling us here that the Holy Spirit has a voice of his own and he will speak to us through that voice that resides within us. So Jesus Christ is the advocate, the lawyer in heaven, interceding for us because we have an accuser, a prosecuted attorney, the Satan, day and night accusing us, right? And then here on earth, we have the Holy Spirit who is also an advocate, one called alongside to help us and strengthen us against the demonic activity here on earth. But don't miss this now. But the greatest thing about all we just heard is the ability to use the name of Jesus because we're in covenant with the Father. Our part of the covenant is to give the Lord our life. We give our heart. He gives us the use of his name. We give the Lord our soul, mind, will, and emotions. And he gives us the use of his name. He says, because if you have my name, you will cast out demons. If you have my name, you will preach good news to the poor. If you have my name, you will proclaim freedom to the prisoners. If you have my name, you will recover sight from the blind. If you have my name, you will cleanse the lepers. If you have my name, you will tread over all the powers of the enemy. If you have my name, healing is yours. Oh, hallelujah. See, Jesus tells us in John chapter 15, verse 16, that whatsoever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John chapter 14, verse 13, and whatsoever you ask the Father in my name, he will do it. John chapter 16, verse 26, in that day you shall ask the Father in my name and I shall pray to the Father for you. In other words, if you say evil spirits depart, Jesus is in heaven saying that is right and depart right now. (laughs) If I say the name of Jesus be healed, Jesus is saying that's right, take it, there it is. Don't let any doubt enter. Just receive it. We don't need the physical body of Jesus like he was walking on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to have the same results that he had when he was present in his physical body. Why? Because we have an advocate in heaven praying for us when we pray. We have an advocate on earth shooting that prayer to heaven and an advocate shooting it back down here. (laughs) Hallelujah. For instance, in Acts chapter 3, When that lame man was sitting by the gate called Beautiful and had been begging for some money, Peter tells him, he goes, hey, I don't have money, but I can give you what I have, which is power in the name of Jesus to get up and be healed. 
Receive your healing by faith in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. See, it's one thing to say the name, but it's another thing to have faith in the name. Lots of people say the name, but they just don't have faith in the name. For instance, Scripture tells us about the seven sons of a Jewish exorcist that heard Paul preaching in the name of Jesus, and they decided, hey, we're going to try this out. It's recorded in Acts chapter 19, if you don't know the story. So they found a man with an evil spirit and laid their hands on him and commanded the evil spirit to come out of him in the name of Jesus. And the demon came out and jumped on those seven guys, and the demon said this, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the evil spirit beat them up and they ran out of the house naked and wounded. In other words, these seven guys did not have a relationship with Jesus. They only had heard of the name of Jesus. Think about the time that Jesus walked the earth, folks. There were many, many boys named Jesus. In the Hebrew, it's a derivative of the name Joshua, Yahshua. So there were men, there were lots of men with that name. It was a- So if you had faith of of Jesus that you knew from Capernaum, but not Jesus from Nazareth, well, nothing is going to happen except getting beat up by a demon. So when we understand the power of the name and the power of the attorney and the power of the blood covenant with what Jesus did for us on the cross, we can bump this up another level. What, What am I getting at? What do I mean? Well, just this. See, there's negotiating power in a covenant. Let's, let's go back to what was mentioned earlier about Abraham being a friend of God. Remember, Abraham's relative Lot was his nephew, okay? In Genesis 18, God said he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's like, should I hide this from Abraham? I mean, why would God want to discuss this with Abraham? These cities are full of evil, so why hesitate to destroy all that evil? Well, because Abraham had a nephew living there named Lot. So Abraham is told of God's plan to destroy these cities. And then Abraham begins a negotiation with God to spare the city. So the final agreement was God said he would spare the city for if there's 10 righteous people there. Well, God couldn't find 10 righteous people. He only found four. And those four were told to leave and God destroyed the cities. But the point is the power of a covenant negotiation. God would not even destroy Lot because of Abraham's seed and bloodline. See, then years later in Genesis 22 is when God goes to Abraham, right? Abraham is friend, they have a covenant. And God tells Abraham, take your only son and offer him up to me on Mount Moriah. And Abraham can't say to God, well, I can't do that, that's too much. No. Abraham obeyed and was willing to take Isaac and kill him and offer him because in the book of Hebrews now, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, it says Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God would be bringing him back to life again. I mean, that's a foreshadowing of the crucifixion right there, way back in Genesis, folks. Abraham believed that God would have resurrected his son if he did what God said and killed Isaac. And Abraham believed that. Why? Because he had a covenant with God. God had given his word and God said a multitude would come from Abraham's seed when he was 75 years old. Now, Abraham knew that in a covenant, God could not go back on his word. The challenge you and I have that we have believing that this is that many of us have made, made half, 
half-hearted covenants in our lives and either we have not complied or the other party has not complied. So then we get hurt and frustrated with the whole idea and then we tend to believe that covenants have no meaning. But they do. Because if God denied the covenant, that would mean God would go back on his name. If God would go back on his name, then it would ruin his reputation. For instance, Moses is talking with God and Moses says, God, remember that covenant you made with Abraham? God wanted to wipe out the Hebrews after their rebellion and worship of the golden calf when Moses was up on the Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. But Moses reminded God of the covenant he made with Abraham. It's all recorded for us in Exodus chapter 32. But if you go back a, a few chapters earlier in Exodus, Exodus chapter 24, don't forget what happened there. Right? In Exodus 24, we find Moses sprinkling the blood of the sacrifice on the altar and on the people after the people agreed to the covenant between them and God. Then Moses and the leaders and the 70 elders had dinner with God. <laughs> but don't miss that Moses sprinkled the blood on the people because the blood seals the deal, seals the covenant. So, you know, then we got to a few chapters later in Exodus 32 when God wanted to wipe out the people after their idol worship of the golden calf. And Moses said, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in your covenant. So even though God saw them worshiping a golden calf and sinning greatly, right? Idol worship right there. God had to honor his blood covenant made all those years ago. <laughs> I mean, can you... Can you process how powerful the blood covenant is? Look at, look at this relationship with, between God and the Jews. Are you aware that some of the most anti-Christian people there are in the world are Jewish? Right, right here in America. I get asked, you know, Adam, why do you continually preach and teach of the, you know, the Jewish calendar, uh, the Hebrew calendar, the festivals of the Lord, uh, God's calendar, the Jewish roots, Jewish things? with Jewish people being so much against Christianity. <laughs> well, here's why. God told the Jews they could have the promised land and that was an unconditional covenant, right? They didn't have to do anything. This is just God, this is just God doing it. God told the Jews they would have Jerusalem as their city forever. It's unconditional. God is not a man that he should lie. See, folks, when God says something and it seals it by his word and the blood covenant, it's unconditional, then it doesn't depend on the mind, will, and emotions. It doesn't depend on our soul or the relationship of those people for God to keep his word. See, God keeps his end. And just because people in our lives have let us down, that doesn't mean we can't trust God's covenant. We need to be all in on this. It's recorded in numerous scriptures that God told David that his house and kingdom will be established forever. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament books of, you know, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel, you know, you'll see time and again through those six books how some of these leaders, some of the kings that followed David were not good men. They were not like they didn't have a heart after God like David. But nevertheless, because of da for David's sake, the Lord keeps his covenant. It's like how, it's like God knows the current king isn't right, but God doesn't bless him because he wasn't right. God blesses him because of the covenant with their ancestor, David. 
And this covenant is still in operation today. The city of Jerusalem is once again the capital of Israel and the covenant goes back 3,000 years because God told David, this city shall be yours. So what is, what is all this rambling I'm doing really saying? Well, there are some of you listening right now thinking you were spared from that accident because you were clever, you were smart. Some of us think we're you know, just blessed because the drugs and the gangbanging didn't kill us. Well, I'm here to tell you something else. Maybe you didn't think about, but wake up and smell the coffee because there was a covenant your relatives probably made with God over you. There was a covenant your great-great-grandparents made over you, right? Your grandparents, your great-grandparents. Before you were ever born, they said, God bless my children and my children's children and my children's children's children. Some, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you're here right now because of the power of a covenant. When you tell God, don't you let kid, my kids go to hell. Don't you let my grandkids die lost. I know they're not paying attention to you right now, God, but God, I'm asking you by the blood of the covenant, put the blood of Jesus on my family. You gotta, you gotta understand this last part, folks. Satan is limited to the blood covenant. There's a bloodline that can't be crossed. The only way the bloodline is crossed is if our free will choices open doors or if we willfully sin. Then look out for the Satan and the demonic. And please acknowledge your sin and repent. Right? But if we can refrain from willfully doing wrong and leading you know, a life of repenting when we make mistakes. And I know that because the Bible says they overcome the Satan by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Folks, when we get in front of God's presence, the best advice I can give is don't try to be pretty. In other words, we've all messed up. So when God asks us, how do you plead? Just say guilty and plead the blood of Jesus because that's gonna get you out of a mess. When you say guilty and God says, what do you need? Just say, I need the blood right now. And God says, you're free in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Folks, if the blood of an earthly one-year-old lamb smeared on the doorposts of homes in the land of Egypt could restrain the destroying angel of God from taking the firstborn Hebrew, how much more shall the blood of the lamb of God protect you? If the woman by the name of Rahab, who was a prostitute, could put a scarlet cloth in the window and be protected... Just think about Rahab for a moment. This, this is recorded in Joshua chapters two through six, her story, right? The scriptures say Rahab's family lived on the wall of Jericho. And scripture also said the walls fell in Jericho after the, the Jews run around the city seven, seven times and blowing the shofar. So how can that be? How can you have a house on the wall and, and it didn't fall, but they, the scriptures say the walls fell, but your house still stands? Why? Because the spies, right, told Rahab to stay in your house during the invasion and you and your family would be spared. We've got to be willing to abide in the faith of the blood of the covenant and take God at his word. And I'm, I am here today to remind you of this. Some of us, you know, right now have kids in rebellion. Some of you, some of us are in rebellion. Some of you have tried to raise your kids in church and you know, as Christians, but now they're older and they're on their own and they think they know it all. But I'm telling you, don't let the Satan beat you up and act like you don't have some authority. You have delegated authority with the blood covenant with God. Don't try to battle it on your own strength. The only way you can deal with this is by pleading the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how you fight your battles. 
The power of the Lamb's blood, the blood of Christ. See, the enemy wants us to think because our children are away from God and they have rebelled against how you raise them and the, the Satan wants us to think he has got them hook, line, and sinker on the road to hell. But I'm telling you, plead the blood and tell the Satan he's not going to take them out before their time because I'm putting the blood of Jesus over them. He can take a, he can take a hike. Right? If God tells Abraham, I will spare Lot because you are my friend. If God says to Moses, I will spare Israel because you are my friend. We'll claim your friendship with the covenant partner and God will spare your seed because that is the power of a covenant. And here's the reason why. Because your needs become God's needs and your enemies become God's enemies. I'm not claiming to know everything about spiritual warfare, but I do know the enemy is relentless in trying to strip the power and authority out of believers' lives as well as the local churches. Hear the heart of what I'm saying now, but folks, there comes a time and that time is now that we can't be wimpy about this. We can't continue to whimper and complain and walk around like zombies and say, I just don't know what we're gonna do. Folks, please understand what I'm gonna say. Forgive me ahead of times, but because I know it's tough and things are hard, but you know what? They've always been that way. America is the greatest nation on earth and we are the most blessed nation and we've been given so much and remember, Scripture says that too much has been given, much is required, much is expected. I get frustrated with the American people whining and wimping when things aren't going their way and they're blaming it on everybody else but themselves. The church does it too. Blame other people for our mess, blame other things for our mess. You know, the same thing, you know, people be in the church like, oh, if the pastor's not doing his job or the music, oh, if we had some good music or the youth ministry's not doing their job or I wish we had a new children's minister. And I'm telling you, please, people, be quiet and realize what the problem is, folks. It's that kind of thinking. The devil is robbing you of your power and authority through the Holy Ghost and he is robbing you of your authority and understanding of the blood covenant. Folk, I know, I know the seeker-sensitive churches don't want to preach and teach on the blood of the covenant. I mean, you can be in those churches five years and they'll not even mention the word blood once. The word blood scares the daylights out of them. Well, you know who else it scares the daylights out of? The Satan. He doesn't want to hear it either, but I'm going to stand here and say the blood, the blood, the blood. There is power in the blood. There is healing in the blood. There is salvation in the blood of Jesus Christ. So speak the covenant, speak the name of Jesus, and say it by faith. God bless you all. Have a great and glorious day.